Uh, my name is Caleb. Hey, we have a, a friend um, just transferred in from Oklahoma State. How weird would it must have feel to transfer into a school, right? Um, so we're all going to say welcome, Jared, on the count of three. And then after tonight, sorry, Jared, I'm putting you on the spot, man. I hope this doesn't embarrass you. Uh, go and introduce yourself and welcome him to TU. Uh, he's right up here. So on the count of three, we're going to say hello. Welcome, Jared. Okay, one, two, three. Welcome, Jared. Hey, we're glad you're here. Uh, he was a part of RUF at Oklahoma State and uh, is now um, a school uh, here. So, cool. Hey, let me pray, and um, we will jump in. Uh, Father, we do thank you that um, you are a God who cares for the, the widow and the orphan. You are a God who cares for the, the downtrodden, the poor. You are a God who cares for the hurting and the lonely. And um, we come together to sit under your word that it might speak to us. As we pray every week, um, for those of us in this place that have had a week full of disruption, would you comfort us? And for the many of us who have come into this place um, having a week of just loathing um, in our comforts, would you disrupt us? Um, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if this is your first time, um, we have been doing a series a, a topical series. So usually we, we look at and study a whole book of the Bible um, together or at least big chunks of the Bible together and work through it that way. Um, this time we did the opposite approach and that, as we took a topic of Scripture and we're kind of seeing how that topic's played out throughout Scripture. Um, and it's a relevant topic, something that our culture's talking a lot about. And, and so I wanted to, to speak into that moment. Um, it's a, it's a, been a four-part series through the topic of social justice. Um, the first week we looked at that word and the Hebrew roots that it has, um, justice in and of itself is social, it's relational. It's to restore people back into relation with society or with family or with others. In and of itself to do justice is to do it socially. Social justice is a good word. I recognize culture has taken it and run a hundred miles with it and distorted it and made it mean a hundred different things. But it's a biblical word. And so the first week we looked at what does doing justice mean and why should we do it? because it's rooted in the character of God. God is a God of justice. We in his image ought therefore to be um, people of justice. Last week or two weeks ago, we looked at an Old Testament survey. What's the Old Testament say about justice? And what did we find out? Quite a lot. So we looked at um, particularly some of the laws, the civil laws of every seven years you would uh, sell, or every seven years you would uh, cancel all the debts that were outstanding, or every 49 years you would go back to your original land. Um, there's all sorts of laws that are put in there to protect the poor and vulnerable. Um, and then we looked at the prophets and how they would time and time again in their exile into Babylon or Assyria and in their time out, they, would, they came after the rich and the powerful who didn't use their power in a gracious and merciful way, but they oppressed um, the vulnerable. And this week we're looking at the New Testament and what Jesus and the apostles have to say about social justice. And it's an obvious conclusion, as Ryan just read, and as we'll look at a variety of passages tonight, that they pick up right where the Old Testament left off, which we wouldn't expect anything else. Um, this is a weird week. If this is your first time, I recognize it's a weird, it's a, it's a hard thing to try to come together every week. And my hope for you is that a variety of things happen, that you find fellowship with one another, that you worship Jesus, that you, you sit in his word and you find comfort and delight in it. But some weeks, we just got to talk about the hard things. Um, and this is one of those weeks where we're going to look at passage after passage, as I've done for the last two weeks. 
and have really truly wrestled with them. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do that. And then I'm going to maybe give a few words of, of parting, and then we'll sing a song. And then my hope is that then this becomes a discussion. I know we're all cold, so it might not last long. Um, but but I, I hope to kind of lay out an argument, and then you see my phone number in the group me. You then come back to me with your arguments, and then I'll come back, and maybe we can have a little dialogue. That's the hope. Um, and I'm slightly terrified. And here's why. Um, because I'm standing before you, um, I'm total hypocrite. This has been the hardest thing for me to have to wrestle with uh, is, is the realization that these things that Jesus teach, I myself do everything in my power to stiff arm them away and, ta- and make them say something that I don't, because I don't want it to say what I think it might say. And so I'm standing before you as a hypocrite, as a brother who, who is on a journey towards a life of justice for the poor and the vulnerable. And God might call me to do crazy things, just as he might call you to do crazy things too. Who knows? I'm also terrified because this passage doesn't make, this doesn't make any friends. You're going to be ticked off. I can almost guarantee you, you're going to be ticked off. Um, I mean, I, I want to just tell you, I'm, I'm aware of that and, and just lean into that. Um, and so, here we go. All right. So, we're going to talk about the problem of this topic in, in relation to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, and then we'll talk about the solution. Um, when I think about the problem, though, we've got to actually start, before we get to the texts, we have to start with the waters that we all swim in. Because the, the problem is multifaceted. The problem, of what I mean by the problem is, um, why are you about to hate these passages? And why are you going to, why are internally you're going to do everything you can to disprove them? And so the problem begins because, um, we live in a, in a consumeristic, materialistic, wealthy, crazy, we have money coming out of our nostrils sort of nation. And you grew up in it, and so did I. And so that's where the problem begins, is because we live in a culture that's obsessed with money. Obsessed with it. Everyone. Some have much more, some have more, and some don't have much. But... Pretty much everyone here, I can fairly assume, you've come from a family or a place, a city, where money is, 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 is very um, uh, um, takeable. I'm going blank on the word. Um, it's, it's available. And so we look at the texts tonight, and we come into them with biases and with blind spots um, we want the text to say particular things. Um, we come in with a, a, a varied level of, of unawareness of where am I blind? Um, because the prized possession of this nation is wealth and success, and through those things you gain power. And if you have power, then you're in control, and that's a good thing. That's what we all want. That's what the nation tells you that you should want. You should want success. You should want fame. We have a whole culture that's there to try to help you have self-glory and self-affirmation. We want to be significant. We want to be seen. And money provides these things. This is what you're shaped by. Um, You're you're shaped by a a nation where we consume and we buy and we're obsessed with ourselves and our status. And And I'm in that too. In the church, we find ourselves, as I talked about last time, like the, the tricky dynamic of trying to apply Old Testament texts to 
the New Testament, New Covenant time, is that God was a theocratic God in a nation state of Israel, and now that Israel is the church and it's spread all around the world. And within that, um, we are then all, all therefore influenced and saturated in the culture that we find ourselves in. And so we, even the church, we find ourselves in a culture of more and more and more and excess and excess and excess. And this culture does something to us. It shapes us. It forms us. As Ephesians 2 says, we are transformed by the patterns of this world. We're conformed by the habits. We're conformed by the loves in the narratives of our culture. Our phones are constantly selling us more products. Our video games are luring us into a personhood of consumption. Our access to purchasing things and thinking about ourselves and our image and our status is constant, unlike any other time in history. We live in a day and age in a place where most of us here tonight have an ungodly amount of access to whatever we want, whenever we want it. And that is really abnormal in this place and time around the world. And it's good for us to just recognize that. We as a people try with every fiber of our being to distance ourselves from suffering. That's our culture. That's my culture. So when we approach a New Testament speaking to the sufferers, the New Testament is a is a, is a story of suffering. And in our culture, we do everything we can to distance ourselves from suffering. So if you read the New Testament and you feel a little bit of a disconnect, well, perhaps that might be it. Um, there was a scientific study. I found this to be funny. Um, so they, 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 uh, these, these scientists did a, a variety of, of surveys um, trying to prove confirmation bias that in this era of a variety of, of articles to read, um, that we want um, particular things to say what we want them to say. And so one of the studies that they did was they, they sent out a study, it was all made up facts, trying to prove that caffeine, um, is a, there's a link between caffeine and breast cancer. That's not true. Um, it was totally made up. They cited things um, to try to make it true, but as people, to, to make it sound true. As thousands and thousands and thousands of people read this, the people who, who rejected it and said, there's no way that's true, were, were women who loved coffee. It's just funny, right? Like They read this thing, and the one group of people that didn't want that to say what it was saying was the one group that would have been significantly affected in their lifestyle if that was true. And so this is where we're at. We approach topics like this and we come in with a particular confirmation bias. And that's the first part of the problem. Um, we don't want Jesus to say what Jesus might want us to hear him say. In addition to this, um, we might, as I talked about a few weeks ago in one of the answers to a question, we might actually be presuming our categories of justice and care for the poor on to Jesus' words. So we take American political frameworks and we put them into Jesus' teachings. You see what I'm saying? We try to make his words fit our already preconceived notions of, of, of these categories. And that's not the categories that he has as he begins to speak. 
Um, so perhaps you might believe that Jesus teaches socialism as we read these things. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe you, as you read these, you already believe and are a fan of socialism. And so maybe you just want Jesus to be teaching socialism as, he, as you read these things. Or you put that the other way around. Maybe you come in as a big fan of capitalism. Or maybe you think that Jesus or the scriptures teach capitalism. You see what I'm saying? So you're going to come in and you're going to read these words. You'll be like, man, actually I think that he's fitting into my categories I'm putting on him. So I'm going to read that and then it's just going to confirm everything that I already thought. Um, so to break, break that down, um, I, I read this quote and I loved it. It said, if scripture confirms your view of others more than it changes your view of yourself, you're not reading it correctly. If, if Scripture confirms your view of others more than it changes your view of yourself, you're not viewing it correctly or reading it correctly. Which someone responded and said, I need to tell someone that. Which is funny, um, but you get the point. And so, before we read these passages, let me just say, Jesus' categories of justice and care for the poor do not fit into our American categories. Um, he's not interested in us so much spinning our wheels to hear his teachings to make us better defendants of our already confirmed position. He's not saying these things so that we can make it political and tell the government what to do or tell other people what to do. He's speaking to you. He's saying, here's what you can do. Here's what you can do, Caleb. Don't, don't take these readings and say, okay, gosh, I hope these other people read that and that all these systems change and then all that will happen. No, he's saying, no, you can do something right now. And this is what I want for you. This is what I want for your heart. All right? So what did he say? What did he say about justice and the poor and our service and our love for the poor? He said a lot. Um, John Newton, he was a, a kind of a famous convert and, and a hymn writer. He said this. He said, if Jesus' words do not teach us that it is in some respects our Christian duty to give preference to the poor, I am at a total loss to understand them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read off a bunch of passages to give you just a little bit of a flavor. I'm leaving off dozens, dozens, dozens. All right, so in Matthew 6, we see first he has an assumption that all Christians are people who give to the poor. When he says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. He's saying, hey, um, you who give to the needy, so you're assuming you do, you give your time, let's just use time, because I know you don't have much money. You give your time, you give your energy, you give your attention to the needy, to those around you, on campus, in the city, wherever. To you Christians who do that, when you do, don't sound a trumpet, do it quietly so that your re reward may be um, as, so your father sees you in, in, in secret, he will reward you. So we see this assumption. Um, but it gets more intense. We see many parables where he talks about this. Um, you can follow along in that, in that group me. You'll, you'll start reading these. Luke 14. He says this. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors over, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who was feasted sumptuously every day. As an American, that should bother you. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish and in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Or the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. I'll skim through some of this. But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will come and say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Etc., etc., and the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he'll say to those on the left, essentially the exact opposite. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we see parables, but we also see encounters with rich and powerful people. In Luke 18, we see a ruler, the, the, the rich young ruler, comes and asks him, Good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We see him, we see him confront the rich, and we see him rebuke the powerful, echoing the cry of the Old Testament prophets, picking up right where they left off in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, woe to you, for you clean the outside of your cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So we see parables. We see Jesus' confronting of the rich and the powerful. And we see commandments. Like in Luke 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. For no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And he goes on, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend those 
who you expect to receive back from. What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. This stuff's crazy. And I think perhaps his most radical command to all of us it's this retake. It's a, it's a, it's, it finds itself in the middle of, 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 of a very similar teaching as he gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But in Luke 12, he's saying this. He's like, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you. And then he says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where your no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And then he goes on to say, hey, the, the master's coming, the day is ending, and lest he find you with your lamp out, he will, he will welcome you in, and in that day will provide you with food and drink. And he's connecting these dots. That here on earth, hey, the pagans, they're the ones who worry about what they eat and what they look like and what, they're, what they drink and how they act. They're the ones who worry about that. Don't worry about that now. Sell your possessions. Give of yourself. Or in other places, he says, die. Pick up your cross and die and follow me. And then in doing so, that's you keeping your lamp lit. And one day the master's coming back and he'll find those whose lamps are still lit. And he'll say, hey, come on. He'll put a servant gown on. This is right from Luke 12. Put a servant gown on and he'll serve you. This stuff's crazy. It makes you uncomfortable, and it should. There's so many things to say about this. But one thing is clear, and that is he is speaking to people who know. One thing that's consistent throughout many of these things, he's speaking to people who know a lot about God. They know a lot about him. They have an intellectual agreement about God. This dude knows the law left and right. All right, I've done them all. And Jesus comes and confronts their heart and their wealth and their self-glory and their self-obsession. And it stings. And it's not just what he said. If you think about it, it's what he, what, who he is. It's how he acted. Right? We see this um, when John the Baptist is in jail. John's disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, Hey, are you truly the Messiah, the long-awaited one of Israel that we've, that we've been sitting here, you know, waiting down, counting down the years for you to show up? And Jesus says, Hey, go tell him this. Send, them, send him this report. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the gospels preached to the poor. Jesus spent his time with the lepers, the sick, the prostitutes, the poor. Imagine anyone who's outcast and not cool. That's who Jesus went and spent all of his time with. And so the basic premise is this. If we as Christians are being formed in our discipleship to Jesus, then it's important to know we're being shaped into a person who spent his time with nobodies. who pursued suffering, who pursued death for the sake of us, 
the nobodies. You know, as my counselor told me once, he said, Caleb, um, I was kind of wrestling with just kind of big picture, purpose of life sort of stuff and some momentary trials. And he said, you know, Caleb, it's important to remember that you're being formed into the type of person who can be spit on and in return love. You know, I think it's, the, the interesting thing is that we can cognitively get behind this idea of being formed into the image of Jesus, but then we act as if this image is a middle or upper class, self-expressive, successful, and powerful American. Right? Maybe I'm just speaking to myself. Instead of a homeless, poor, nothing to look at here, sufferer who refused to buy into the glamour of cultural identities and standards and paved his own way. You know, the early church, they, they worshipped the way. He paved his own way. He was the way, this new radical way. And the church, the beginning of the, of, of the, the history of the church, they were a radical bunch. Jesus' earliest disciples were called followers of the way. And, and they continued his story. Um, you know, Ryan read one of the passages, James, one of the three closest followers of Jesus. What does he say? True religion is what? Is true religion like, you know, understanding all the great doctrines and, and just learning them and loving them? No, true religion is, is, is what? It's, it's, it's caring for the widow. It's showing up and being on the side of the vulnerable. Um, or else you, you see um, in, in the beginning days, so Pentecost happens in Acts 2, and the Spirit just wrecks fools, and 3,000 plus are converted and changed, and they begin to gather in small groups, and it says this, that they devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the teaching and breaking of bread, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, a.k.a. they took Jesus' teaching from Luke 12 literally. They were selling their possessions to any who had need. And guess what the Lord did? He added to their number day by day. Who would have thought? You know, the early church, these, these fools were crazy they were willing to go to the stake to be burned for the name of Jesus at the, at the, at the audacious entertainment of King Nero and his, and his people. These people were, were real hard-line sufferers. And for the first 300 years, Rome hated them. But they cared for one another so well. They cared for their people and they cared for those that Rome sent on the outskirts. The Christians were the people who went and found those outskirted Roman people and brought them into their community and gave them anything that they had in need. And after 300 years of that, Rome finally took notice and said, man, this Christianity thing is great. And they become a Christian nation. Um, we see in Galatians 2, you know, it says this, James and, and Peter and John who followed the pillar, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace was given to, to Paul. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. And Paul asked us only this, to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. You know, the New Testament is, is, is littered with words of warning, 
words of, of justice, words to the rich, to care for the poor. But everything in us resists it. And that's the problem. We want these texts to mean different things. We want them to mean something that we can accept without having to change a single thing about our life. At least that's what I do. I like Jesus as long as I can remain living as long as however I want to. We want to resist this. We try to get around the problem. You know, I heard a quote from a, an 18th century theologian that said, it seems to me that the role of the minister at times is to explain away a passage. And I don't want to explain this away. I want you to sit in this discomfort. You know, um, we live in a comfortable and wealthy moment in time. And, and so we look at all these passages, and there are dozens more and we say, yeah, I know, I know. I have some idols, and, you know, the gospel is just about saving souls, and, and my soul's saved, and I just need to go get some other soul saves, and, like, don't, don't put that on me, Caleb. Don't talk to me about the sick and the poor and the vulnerable. Don't get out of here with that. That's, how we, that's, that's what the church has done with us for the last 200 years. They've heard this. They've heard Jesus' words in the, in, the, in the synagogue in Luke 4 where he says, I've come and done this thing, and they just spiritualize it away. Now, we're all sick and poor. Is he speaking about our souls? Well, yeah, that's definitely true. But these words should sting because he's bringing about a new way of life. There is an ethic and a character and a persona that describes a Christian. The Christian is the one who cares for the poor and the vulnerable. The Christian is the one who sits by the person that other people won't sit by. The Christian is the one who, who goes out of their way to give of their time and their energy and their resources to people who need it. That is, that is the mark of a Christian. That's how we live. And I don't like that because that calls me to do something different in my life, doesn't it? You know, I was talking to a, um, a neighbor last night and he said, man, Caleb, um, or not a neighbor, I was talking to a, a, a friend, um, one, a, a really influential friend of mine, um, who, who lives in the, the, the poorest neighborhood in, in Tulsa. I invited him over to chat about this stuff. And he's like, man, there's so many Lazaruses around. There's so many. Um, it's like, I met this guy in my, in my street. You know, he moved in about 15 years ago, and he developed relationships with all these different types of people that I would probably see on the side of the street and not want anything to do with. But now he's friends with them. He says, man, I met this guy, he's 10 years old, his dad's in jail for life, his mom's a drug addict, he was getting in school, trouble all the time, and so my wife and I, we prayed about it, we tried to figure out what to do for this poor kid, and we decided we're to talk to the principal and we're to take him out of school, and I'm going to homeschool him, and so every day for a year and a half, I homeschooled him to get him up to speed, and then we enrolled him in this prep school, and now he's the top student in the class. He's like, there's so many Lazaruses around, man. I could give you a dozen more stories. A dozen more stories. You know, one of the, um, one of the things we're going to look at next week as we conclude this is like, what do we do? But before we get that, I want this to kind of sit and for you to think about this. Um, in your quad this week, you're going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're going to wrestle with these things. 
Um, okay, so that's the problem. So what's the solution? I'm not going to give us a solution. Um, there's no solution. I could try to talk it away. I could try to tell you about, hey, man, don't worry. Like, it's not saying what you think it might be saying. He doesn't actually mean sell your possessions and give to the needy. Don't worry. Um, it's kind of the point. Um, man, right now, my wife and I, we're, we're, we're really struggling through this and praying through a lot of this. Um, your solution's between you and Jesus. Right? Like, your solution's between you and Jesus. I think a wise next step is to pray. Um, I think a wise next step is to repent, where you will always find mercy. To commit yourself to Jesus. To commit yourself to caring for the other. Like, we're not, we're, we're, we're it's, it's, it's silly for us to think that we're just going to come off and, and all of a sudden be the most devout um, you know, Mother Teresa type figure. No, it takes one day and then two days and then one week and one year and ten years. And before you know it, the Spirit of God has changed you into a different type of person, more into the image of His Son. And so it takes one day. How am I tomorrow? How am I going to be a Christian who thinks about the person that nobody else on this campus is thinking about and have moved toward them in love? How radical and how cool would that be? Because at the end of the day, what we come here and confess on a weekly basis is a gospel message where that is, that's what we believe. That is what we believe about the incarnation and the work and the ministry and atonement of Jesus. That we were the outsider, we were the poor, and he came for us who did not deserve it. And in response, the more that we soak that in, the more that we become changed, and the more that we live that out, and the more that we live that out, the more that we become obsessed and in love with this Jesus who would do that for us. And it becomes this happy dance. And so that's my encouragement to you. I don't, man, I called my friend this morning and I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't. I don't want to don't want to say these things. He's like, man, these passages. You can just go up there and read the passage, and you piss people off. It's true. Um, so I'm going to leave the passage up to you, and we're going to pray that the Spirit would do His work, and that He would convict you of some things, and that we would be a people who are excited about the the, the people that uh, that nobody else on campus is excited about. All right. Um, Father, we thank you for your word and your son and the way that he challenges us to be um, transformed and conformed by, by your way because the way of, of the world is death. It is a constant cycle to nowhere. We will never get enough likes to feel good about ourselves. Lord, would we be servants that are humble and eager to do your work? Would we be servants who, who, like the rich young ruler, come before you and hear these words, but turn to you, your face that is sad, that we would turn back to you? Um, I, I ask that for myself, as for years of my life I've neglected this, I've skimmed it over. I haven't, I've made it say something that it's not. 